My name is Noah Verbacek, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture passage for this morning. It comes from John chapter 18, verse 28. Please follow along as I read aloud. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in an Aramaic, Gabatha. Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Well, perhaps it would be good to pray again before we look at this passage and talk about politics. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's impossible not to just hear that passage read and not hear the repetition of the word king and all that that entails. 
Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us a vision of King Jesus on the throne of the universe, ruling, reigning, sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign in the mountain of the ocean floor. Lord, I pray that we would be enamored with Jesus and see his beauty in a fresh way this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, our church is in a sermon series called All Who Are Weary, The Idols That Exhaust Us and The Savior Who Won't. We're looking at the heart of Christ, which is gentle and lowly, as we're told in Matthew 11. We're looking at how his burden, the burden of Jesus, is for sinners who feel weary and heavy laden. But those warm sentiments exist in a foreground in front of a colder background. Why are we weary? Why are we heavy laden? Often, there's a brokenness that's out there and in here that leads us to feel this way. And what we've been talking about is idolatry, this, this making of a God that we think we can control. We've talked about work, how work can be a wonderful thing, but it can also be a terrible God. We've talked about our dreams in life, how they can be good dreams, dignified dreams, and yet they make a terrible God. We've talked about money, which is a good thing, but again, a terrible God. This week, we talk about politics, which can be a wonderful thing. So much good in this world is done through women and men who serve as public servants. So much good. But it also makes a terrible God. After the first draft of this sermon series was created, we, we, we took it and we showed it to the other pastor elders. <laughs> we don't always do that, but this is a little out of step with what we would normally do, kind of our bread and butter preaching, as we showed it to the other pastor elders. And I had originally put the sermon on politics right before the election. Uh, so Sunday, November 1st, before Tuesday the 3rd. And among the other things, but there's only a handful of feedback, but one of the things was, why don't you take that sermon on politics and just move it up forward? I presume they wanted me to do that so I could tell you who to vote for, <laughs> in case you want to mail in your ballot early, um, as my wife and I did this week. I'm joking. I, I'm not, <laughs> that's not the reason they wanted me to move it up early. I think they wanted me to move it up early because that's, that, that's the sorts of things we're talking about for the next few weeks. So I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Some of you do want pastors to tell congregations how to vote. Others of you don't. And likely you feel strongly about that one way or another. A pastor should tell his congregation how to vote. A pastor should never tell his congregation how to vote. One Christian newsletter from a popular Christian leader told his subscribers that voting one way and not voting another comes down to voting for good on the one hand and evil on the other. That's charged rhetoric. Too strong? Just right? Probably you have an opinion about that. The Sunday after the 2016 presidential election, I led our church through a time of prayer. Some of you 
We're probably there for that. We were not in this building, but I stood right down what was there at the old sanctuary. And I remember saying that if you took the width of the sanctuary and, and you know, every inch represented so many, such and such number of thousands of votes, and you stretched those thousand votes from left to right, and, and you stood in the exact center, then moved three inches to one side, that represented the popular vote for one candidate and the popular vote for the other candidate. Then if you moved back to the center and kind of went mm, a foot, maybe two, to the other side, that represented the electoral college votes and thus the winner of that presidential election election. And I just remember looking out at you and say, who wants to lead a country that divided? <laughs> Not many of us. I, don't, I wouldn't want to lead a, a church that divided, I said. But it's not just the national division, it's a local one too. During the 2008 election, uh, neighbors in my neighborhood had, had signs in their yards, that's right, people do still today, right? Vote for this person, vote for that person. And, and nothing unusual about that in a sense. I remember walking through my neighborhood though, and, and it wasn't just um, the national uh, kind of political climate that was charged, it was the local one too, where I, where I lived at the time. There was, I think it was a fire chief of some sort, and there was questions about how that fire district had appropriated money. And, and, and so I called this person James, and there were signs in yards, vote for James, and there were signs not don't vote for James. And, and I'm walking down the street and like one vote house says vote for James and then it's, it's actually a street between them. They're both corner houses. And then the other vote like facing that sign says don't vote for James. I, I've said this before but the interesting thing was James lived in the house that said vote for James. And his neighbor had the sign don't vote for James. It's, it's funny and it's not. I wouldn't say we're normally a very political church. That's by design, not by accident. We want our mostly non-political services and sermons to be a gift to you. Like that, that's how I view it, at least. I think that's how many of those who view it here. We want that to be a gift to you. We want to give you, week after week, the supremacy of Jesus. We want to give you the reminder that his rule will outlast whatever controversy feels most electric at the moment. I wrote a two-part essay about churches and politics. It was long. Churches and politics and pastors and sermons, which was published in late August. And I want to read just a sentence. You know, sometimes we read from Keller or C.S. Lewis. Thank you. You can laugh. That's okay. I'm going to read, I'm going to read my own couple sentences here. Uh, one of these is not like the other. But here's what I wrote. No dichotomy exists between the superiority of Jesus and a discussion of current events. Paul writes of Christ's preeminence as the head of the body, that means the church, and the firstborn from the dead. That's Colossians chapter 1. So, there must be a way of discipleship, so teaching people about Jesus, that can discuss current events while displaying the reign of King Jesus, not obscuring it. There's got to be a way to talk about the reign of Jesus and current events in a way that doesn't obscure, that doesn't so overwhelmingly talk about current events that it obscures the rule and reign of Jesus. There's got to be a way to do that. So in other words, if Jesus is Lord of everything, then we should be able to, at times and in the right proportion and as it arises from the text of Scripture, to be able to speak about current events in a way that shows forth the beauty of the reign of Jesus. When we do talk about politics and current events, it's my main concern My main concern is to help us think in a way that we might call Christianly. 
about the world. And though we do this rarely, this morning will be one week, I'm going to try to help us do it overtly. Our passage of scripture this morning comes from John chapter 18 and 19, which you just heard read. The passage takes place on the final day, really the early morning hours into the day, the last day of Jesus' life before he's crucified, what we call Good Friday. Jesus and the religious leaders had many heated exchanges. Religious leaders and Jesus, many heated exchanges. They would try to trap Jesus to, to make him look stupid or sinful or both, but it was always they who would end up looking stupid and sinful. And after three years, those heated exchanges reached the boiling point, and Jesus had to die. So they seek to crucify him. As we look at this passage, we're going to see some of our temptations to view authority wrongly, specifically political authority wrongly. But I also want us to see Jesus and how our Savior stands in contradiction to those sinful ways. First, we're going to look at the way of the religious wrongly viewing political authority. And then we're going to look at the way of the secular, wrongly viewing political authority. And by the religious, I mean the, mostly the Jewish leaders. And by the secular, I mean mostly Pilate. So, so let's just get into it. We're going to start with the Jewish leaders. Let me reread verses 28 to 30 from chapter 18 again. They go like this. Then they led Jesus from house to house of Caiaphas. This is the religious leaders or excuse me, from the house of Caius, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. So this is kind of into Thursday night, into now Friday morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. In other words, just trust us. Just take our word for it. Just just kill him, Pilate. In these verses, we see the first of two temptations related to politics from the religious. We see in the Jewish religious leaders what I'm going to call, and this is going to be a mouthful, fastidious scruples coupled with moral bankruptcy. That's a mouthful, but basically I'm talking about hypocrisy. I'll say it again. Fastidious scruples coupled with moral bankruptcy. They seem to care about the speck of dust out there in someone else's eye, and they can't see the two by four in their own eyes. The religious leaders tell Pilate they want Jesus dead because he's doing evil when it's they who are committing great evil. And to make the hypocrisy even more stark, they remain committed to ceremonial cleanness when their hands are covered in blood. Going into Pilate's headquarters would have made them unclean by their understanding of the Old Testament law and thus would not have allowed them to participate in the Passover celebration. The Passover was one of the cornerstones of Jewish religious life. It was the celebration of when God saved his people from the hand of Pharaoh. I'm going to say more about that later in the sermon. But for now, I just want to note that these religious leaders are saying, in effect, let's kill the Jewish Messiah and eat the Passover lamb like good Jews. Hypocrisy might be easy to see in them. But let's not make this passage merely a window 
a window that we look through to them. I want to I hold it up as a mirror and ask a few questions. There's a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Jonathan Lehman who wrote a helpful book that was recently published about faith and politics, and he asked his readers in that book a series of unhelpful, or excuse me, uncomfortable questions I think are helpful, but they are uncomfortable. Let me read a few of them now. Lehman begins this, what is really like more than a page of questions. I won't read all of them, though. Lehman writes, Paul asked the Jews of his day, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? This comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 21. The author writes, I've got a few questions of my own. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are ethnically or nationally different from you? You who vote for family values, do you honor your parents and love your spouse self-sacrificially? You who speak against abortion, do you embrace and assist the single mothers in your church? Do you encourage adopting? Do you prioritize your own children over financial comfort? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in your congregation? You who proclaim that all lives matter, do all your friends look like you? You who fight for traditional marriage, do you love your wife, cherishing her as you would your own body and washing her with the water of the word, an allusion to Ephesians 5. And he goes on, he talks about taxes and brings it home. He talks about the economy and brings it home and and all these things. And then he says, finally, you who share your opinions on all these issues on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's Supper with church members who disagree? And do you pray for his or her spiritual good? I, I look at that list of uncomfortable questions and I wonder if perhaps this passage here in John's gospel is not just about the Jewish leaders, but Christians today more broadly. Let's keep going. I, I see another temptation politically. Again, it's a mouthful. That, that's going to be a theme here this morning. But I'm going to do my best here to bring the sense of the passage in the most precise language I can. The next temptation from the religious goes like this. Unmitigated and exorbitant nationalism. I'll tell you what that, I mean by that in a minute. Let me show you it in the passage first. That is the most important thing, to see it in the text. So this is from chapter 19, verses 14, 15, and 16. So if you have a Bible, just go ahead and glance down and see it in the text. We read in in 19, verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified, to them to be crucified. That last statement on the lips of pious Jews should take your breath away. We have no king but Caesar. Really? What about God? He's not your king? I'll say the political temptation of the religious again. Unmitigated and exorbitant nationalism. What do I mean by that? I mean a love for one's country that is grotesquely imbalanced. It's unmitigated, meaning there's nothing holding it back. 
these religious leaders are so pro-Israel. They're not pro-Caesar. That's just a means to be pro-Israel in this moment. The chameleons. They are so pro-Israel that they have entirely lost sight of the kingship of God. Which leads me to say this. We love America best when we love God more than America. Which is a statement you can just insert, take out America and put like a thousand things in. We love our children best when we love God more than our children. We love our pastoring best when we love God more than our pastoring. And so on. In Jonathan Lehman's book, the one I mentioned earlier, he mentioned that we should love America as a person loves his church. It's not the only one, but it's the one we know. It's the one we love. And all her greatness and all her weaknesses. But our love for the advancement of our church and the advancement of our country must be restrained and governed by a higher love, a love for God. So maybe I'll ask a few more uncomfortable questions since we're doing that now. (laughs) These ones I wrote. Can you articulate the weaknesses of your preferred political party? Can you see the strengths where they exist of your not preferred political party? Here's another question. Would Jesus have the exact same political views as you? Well, maybe we should keep going. (laughs) The other main character in this passage is Pilate. Pilate. Let's talk about Pilate, the way of the secular. Pilate was a Roman governor. He was, history tells us, both in some ways ruthless and in other ways fearful. We see both in this passage. In another passage in the gospel accounts, we read that there was this time when Pilate slaughtered a bunch of Jewish worshipers just as they were bringing their sacrifices. So they're making sacrifices. Pilate comes and slaughters them, Luke 13. He was ruthless. Here in this account, we also see him as fearful. Pilate was an evil man, but I've grown more sympathetic to him over the years, if I can say it that way, as I've understood the context. I was talking about Passover before. Let me mention how that detail about Passover affected Pilate. We call the last week of Jesus' life Passion Week, which also coincided with the Jewish festival of Passover. Jerusalem typically had 40,000 people at that time. So 40,000 people. But during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the week-long festival that culminates in Passover, during that, Jerusalem would swell, the city of Jerusalem would swell to six times its normal size. So, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey which is a charged metaphor. It's it's what a king would ride on. It's what Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied, that their king would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's coming to a crowd of 240,000 people with 200,000 of them being Jewish, Jewish worshipers who had recently traveled to Jerusalem. And what did they travel there to celebrate? They traveled there to celebrate how God overthrew a foreign nation who was oppressing his people. And oh, by the way, they're currently being oppressed by Rome. 
It would be like if Canada had taken over America, but a million people marched every July 4th across across the Washington Mall, Washington, George Washington, Revolutionary War, singing God bless America. You'd realize, oh, that's charged, right? And when you add to this the fact that the relationship between the Roman rulers and the Jewish religious leaders was tenuous at best, all of a sudden, the slow build of pressure throughout the entire system becomes apparent. In short, Jesus is coming into a house filled with gas, dangerous, delicate, and the wrong spark could make the whole city explode. And Pilate had to make sure nothing exploded on his watch. So with that in mind, look at chapter 18, verse 37, 38, 39. We see two temptations here related to secular uses of authority. Then Pilate said to him, to Jesus, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When I had read verse 38 in the past, I had heard in Pilate's question, What is truth? Um, what we might call postmodern sentiments, an anachronism of. 1800 years, but I'd I'd heard those sorts of things. In other words, Pilate's saying truth. There's no such thing as capital T truth. There's your truth and my truth and their truth, but there's no absolute truth. What is truth? I'm not so sure that's what he actually means. I hear instead in his question, cynicism and ambivalence regarding truth. Pilate is not saying truth doesn't exist, but rather, what does it even matter? Pilate has spent his life trafficking in expediency and power that's devoid of truth. Basically, he's saying, what you and I are doing here, Jesus, in fact, what everyone does everywhere, has nothing to do with truth. Pilate is saying, Truth or no truth, I've got to keep the peace. And in doing so, keep my ruling power. And you're in the way of that, Jesus. And that's why truth doesn't matter. He's cynical. He's ambivalent. Not that there isn't truth. It's like, what what does truth matter? I wonder if some of you feel that way regarding the gospel and our Christian witness and culture. What does truth matter? Just do what it takes to win. Why does character and integrity matter? Just keep power. That's not the approach Jesus takes. Speaking of Christ's approach, look, look at what Jesus says to Pilate. It was the last temptation here. They looked at one, ambivalence, cynicism regarding truth. Let's look at one more secular wrong view about authority. Look what Jesus says to Pilate. I'm going to read from chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered in their exchange, earlier in their exchange, Jesus answered to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. When Jesus was arrested, what does Peter do? Peter whacks off the ear of a soldier with his sword. You don't swing your sword at the ear, right? You swing it ahead and someone ducks and you catch an ear. Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. And Jesus healed the soldier's ear. John chapter 18, verse 10. The kingdom of God doesn't advance the way power traditionally advances. The servants of Jesus have a fight. Pray, keep watch, bear witness to the truth. Jesus told them. But our fight is not the same kind of fight, the same kind of fighting that the world does. Pilate Pilate only knows force and brutality, the way of the secular. Christ's kingdom advances not through hostility, but through the compassionate and sacrificial and fierce witness to the truth. There's this growing sentiment I hear from Christians and church leaders that concerns me. I hear a growing sentiment among Christians and church leaders that the world is so bad and this cultural moment is so significant that Christians must forgo love and compassion so that we can fight for God's truth. In other words, to honor God, we must disobey God. To build God's kingdom, we must fight like the world fights. That's not true. We don't have to dishonor God in one area to honor him in another area of life. I think it's fair to say that Jesus was very odd to Pilate. I mean, you hear that in, in the question, in the back and forth, like, who is this guy who's sitting in front of me? Jesus was very odd. Let's look at chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. I want to end the sermon talking about Jesus, talking about our Savior, 19, 10, and 11. So Pilate said to him, he will not speak to me? I presume there, everybody who's ever been in front of Pilate is pleading for their lives. Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus, throughout this conversation, and certainly at this particular point, exemplifies another way. Not the way of the religious leaders, not the way of the secular. This passage is not merely given to us so that we can see the sin of the religious leaders of the secular. And it's not merely given to us so it can be a mirror to look back at our own sin, potentially. This passage is given to God's people to behold the beauty of Jesus. Some of you are so discouraged by politics. You are the ones I mainly want to speak to and encourage this morning. Jesus displays moral integrity over and against fastidious scruples coupled with more bankruptcy. Christ will not bend his character to avoid suffering. Jesus displays properly ordered loves 
over and against unmitigated and exorbitant nationalism. Christ loves God the Father more than anything else. Jesus displays allegiance to the truth over and against cynicism and ambivalence regarding the truth. Christ was born to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus is founding a kingdom that sovereignly grows when his people honor him over and against fighting with the weapons of the world. It may not look like much, but the kingdom of God is real and it is growing and it shall not perish. The theme verses in our series, which I alluded to at the beginning of the sermon, come from Matthew chapter 11. I want to read those to you again. Helpful, I think, to come back to them now and again. So Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's that kind of to be bound to Jesus, this metaphor that faith, like wood and harness and rope strapped to Jesus. That's the provocative metaphor for faith. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason we can come to Jesus, the reason we can celebrate his lowliness and his humility and his meekness is because he is not only those things. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In the Gospel of John, we read of Jesus turning water to wine, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. Jesus can calm a storm with words, feed 5,000 with a few scraps of food. Just a few verses before where we picked up the passage in chapter 18, just a few verses before that, the soldiers come to get Jesus and he says to them, okay, we're looking for Jesus, where is he? And he says, I am he, which is this callback to the book of Exodus. And he says, I am he. And just in this little glimpse, he gives those soldiers a glimpse of his majesty. And what do they do? They fall down scared, trained professional Roman soldiers that would make us terrified. They fall over scared. That's power. Verse 32 of our passage, we read that the way Jesus was dying was to fulfill his own words that he had spoken. He's not getting ramrodded in some crossroads of politics that went sideways. He knows exactly what's going on. In fact, he's orchestrating it. Pilate thinks he has the authority to take Jesus' life. Pilate does not have that authority, at least emanating from himself. What authority Pilate has was given to him from above. Jesus is not a martyr in the classic sense. Our Lord tells his followers, John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Pilate does not take his life. The religious leaders do not take his life. Jesus lays it down. And when he does, when sin is atoned for, as the true Passover lamb slaughtered, And it is finished. He takes it up again on the third day. Give me it back. Oh, church, we have a wonderful, sovereign Savior. His lowliness and his gentle heart are remarkable because he is not merely lowly and gentle. Let that view of Jesus encourage you.
I'm gonna pray and invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in a couple songs. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. I, I look at the political landscape. I, I, it, it's just, what do we do? <laughs> do, we, do we double down and engage with more intensity? Probably should do that. <laughs> do we sort of retreat and just focus on the church and what we can be as Christians? We should probably be doing that too. But how that works itself out and our public life, our private life, our church life, it's, it's so hard to know. But what we can know is that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that that truth would govern all that we do and say and feel. And we pray this in Jesus' name.